Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. So I am, and welcome to a very special interview podcast dedicated to Kenneth Branagh's wonderful new film, the multi-BAFTA and Oscar-nominated Belfast, which has been out in cinemas in this country for a couple of weeks now. You might not think it to hear him, but Branagh was born and raised in Belfast in the 1960s, leaving Northern Ireland behind with his parents when he was nine years old. Those experiences have formed and informed the semi-autobiographical Belfast, which Branagh wrote and directed, and which centres on a young boy not named Kenneth, interestingly enough, growing up in Belfast in 1969, just as the troubles were about to erupt and change life in Northern Ireland for decades. It's perhaps the most personal film Branagh has ever made, and speaking as someone who also was born and raised in Northern Ireland, albeit a very different part of the country at a very different time, I connected deeply with it too. And so that notion of growing up in Northern Ireland, of being surrounded by violence, but also by camaraderie and warmth and love, forms the backbone of my in-depth conversation with Branagh, which was recorded over Zoom recently. We also talk about the impetus for him to make the film now at this stage in his life, the decision to adorn the soundtrack with Van Morrison classics, and how life changed for him when he moved away from Northern Ireland at such a tender age. But as we discovered, you can take the boy out of Belfast, but you can't take Belfast out of the boy. So you can't. We buns and all that. Uh, unlike Helen O'Hara's recent interview with Jamie Dornan for the same film, our accents didn't get stronger as this interview went on, uh, although Kenneth Branagh can slip back into the Belfast brogue whenever he likes. And it's startling to hear. Here we go. Me talking to Sir Kenneth Branagh. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined. I almost said we're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast. So we are uh, by the writer and director of Belfast, Kenneth Branagh. Hello, devil are you, sir? I'm very good. How's yourself, mate? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, I thought this film was tremendous. Uh, and it's I'm going back to Northern Ireland on Thursday. I don't get back that often these days. But this film felt like it had transported me there uh-huh. in, a, in a weird way because it's not my time period. I grew up in the in the 80s and I grew up with the, the troubles in a very, very different way. And I grew up in a very, very different place. I didn't grow up in Belfast. I grew up in, a, in, the, in the countryside. But at the same time, this felt like my childhood. It's obviously your childhood for the most part, yeah. but um, that universality, is that what you were you were aiming for with this movie? I was hoping for. It took a long time to come around to writing this. And one of the reasons I decided to do it in the end was to feel that I had uh, was at a stage in my life where I could get beyond it being some sort of um, documentary account of my own childhood uh, and instead intersect and maybe uh, connect with other people's. Uh, it's how I began to approach not giving people the same names, giving it a slightly more mythic quality in my own mind anyway. Um, and one of the things that's been amazingly rewarding about about having the film be seen by people is that almost the first thing they say to me is what it tells them about their own childhood. It seems to unlock something. A lot of people who've had to move away from places that were very important to them, people who remember very important family decisions, and also who remember that moment uh, of whatever you might call innocence or childhood before the grown-up world enters in, you know, difficult ways. And in my case, it was quite a sort of traumatic way. But in other mm. cases, people just have that before and after moment when they start to worry a bit in life. And uh, I felt as though the story was arriving at a point where 
that might be able to be part of other people's shared experience, not not just mine. So in terms of your own experience and how much that that uh, is portrayed in the film, what, what, what would you say? What's the percentage? What are we looking at here? Are we looking at 50%, 60% more? <laughs> <laughs> well, what, one of the things that makes it hard to answer that question is that uh, you have a nine-year-old experiencing it. It's that point of view, almost literally physically that point of view quite a lot of the time in the film. And that's a point of view of a kid 50 years away from me. So mm-hmm. objective truth is not really available as the psychiatrist psychiatrists say, you know, the facts of our life are less important than how we remember them. This is how I remember them with uh, what I hope is an emotional truth, but definitely that contains pivotally the moment when my life changed for sure in 20 seconds when what I thought was the sound of bumblebees became the sound of voices, became the sound of a crowd, became our street engulfed in violence. That happened for sure. And in the same chaotic, anarchic, terrifying way, um, I did get involved in looting a supermarket. Um, uh, the film, in fact, actually, in fact, reveals that my my life of crime has really been an unsuccessful one. Not only there, but in 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 the, in the great Turkish delight heist, uh, I was also you know significantly unsuccessful. So, um, but those things happened, whether I liked them or not. Um, not everything that happens that follows is 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 strictly true. It's inspired by rather than directly based on, and that's deliberate. But um, I, a lot of it was from the um, yeah the, the the facts of what I saw not happening not only just happening to my family but to mm. families around. Absolutely, it's 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 interesting the way that the uh, uh, the troubles and we're we're right at the beginning of the of the troubles as they as they really began to escalate in Northern Ireland uh, in this film in 1969. It's interesting the way they they suddenly crash into the movie, and yeah. I imagine. In the writing of this, that was something that you had to be very, very careful about getting that balance. One of the things I loved about the movie was the the carefree nature of it. You know, going back to that idea of idyllic, innocent childhood, and every now and again, and this is this is something I grew up experiencing as well. Every now and again, the troubles would crash into your into your life, be it a report on the news or someone, a family friend, or something like that, getting caught up in stuff. Um. Was it difficult to strike that balance of that during the writing of this and indeed the editing process? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, what what I knew was that the original incident that really had our town, uh, our street, our neighborhood disrupted by this um, left a real strong trail of tension. Um, Essentially, once it happened, we were all on code red, high alert for anything like that to happen again, because it did so, it seemed like out of a clear blue sky, in this case, August the 15th, sunshine, a hot August, the summer of love, that weekend, that very day, Woodstock, the pop festival was happening. Um, There was was the the British music movement was happening. There was a kind of sizzle all over the place. We didn't expect it to kind of burst into flames the way it did where we were. And it left a long taste and a long sense of being unsettled. It's why this lockdown during which the film was written, uh, really reminded me of the uncertainty and the unsettled nature that you described so well there, where for me, it made the younger me a much more guarded individual. And yes, you kept getting back and wanting to get back as human beings try to get back to regularity, routine, simplicity. What did this boy have in front of him? Football, cinema, the girl, church, if he had to. Um, <laughs> and uh, And these things were 
were you, you attempted to navigate your way back to the normal version of them, but there was always this concern that the blue touch paper could be lit at any time. Mm. Was there a sense even back then, uh, as a as a, a nine year old, overhearing perhaps parental conversations, that there was a sense that you need to get out of the country? That that was very much the the, the driving force, the impetus behind that that decision. Yeah, I mean, I read a, I read a statistic uh, just this morning uh, that across those first couple of years of the trouble, one hundred and twenty thousand people left Belfast. You know, it was a it was a big figure of folk who who found that 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 gamble you described was uh, was there. Yes, I think that once it happened, the other thing it did to what you might call the normal life is that you became. I felt like you became a spy. You were listening on banisters. You were hanging around at barricades, and you were hearing, you know, the dangerous men with raven black hair often who reminded you of villains in movies um, like uh, the Jack Palance character in Shane um, <laughs> who were from whom you would get you know and you'd hear instructions or you'd hear little bits of info um, and and you you had this sense because your life was in in a sense um, shaped by the way you framed it regarding movies thrillers and westerns you were hearing the language you heard in those films from men, mostly men, who often were, as my mother used to put it, trying to play the guy in the big picture. And a lot of people, um, you know, with with smaller minds that were, were, were filling a power vacuum, if you like, mm-hmm. at least at the street end of things, not in the more sophisticated political groupings. But um, uh, yes, there was, we definitely, life was un- unsettled and you you were in disguise in a way after after that moment. And uh, yes, the constant threat. And I suppose what the film ended up for me dealing with more directly than I realized when I started it was loss, you know, loss of identity, loss of a home, loss of a nationality, ultimately loss of an accent, loss of, loss of, and, 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 and specifically loss of a loved one. And uh, when the kid is on that sofa mm. towards the end of the Film and the parents are really just slowly trying to drip feed him the certainty of what their decision must be. Um, he is screaming, um, you know, I don't want to leave Belfast. And uh, I could as easily read into that, I don't want to grow up. I don't want to lose my parents. I don't want to see change. I don't want to have to deal with this thing human beings find so difficult to, to handle, which is change. Um, and uh, Yes, in, in, the, in the screenplay, you were trying to strike the balance between that, the naturalism of that, the pain of that, and then these heightened moments, mm. both for the violence, but also for some of the moments of glamour and excitement, you know, the ad hoc parties that this kid would see like it was the movies where, you know, I don't know if it was like this for you growing up, but if, if, if ever there was a chance for some ad hoc party to happen, if somebody had a bottle of Guinness or a new long playing record came into the street or something, music, song, dance, jokes, whatever, people were up, they would, a hoolie would be had. If there was a sniff of a chance, <laughs> it would be had. Indeed, indeed. Uh, it wasn't quite like that for me, but because uh, Bel- Belfast for me was very strange and uh, it was it was forbidden territory for me, Belfast. Right. Well, I have I have no doubt. I have no doubt. And yet for us, you know, the countryside was forbidden territory because that's where dangerous things happen. That's where people got taken to. That's where, you know, uh, stuff happened in the middle of the night, you know, in wherever it might be, bandit country or mm-hmm. kidnap country. It was, you know, there was an unsettling air to the whole place. Absolutely. And uh, I, I want to delve into some of the 
creative choices that you you make in this in this film. It is your uh, second black and white film with Michael Maloney. Uh, yeah. So is this, is this part of an unofficial trilogy? Can we expect something? <laughs> Ask Michael Maloney about that. He was uh, it was great to to reunite with him. Uh, I must say, who's been a big part of my sort of um, filmmaking life, and to uh, uh, yeah, to have him play this sort of uh, Frankie West character who who uh, is one of the people trying to walk the fine line of sort of joining in with what needs to happen, but keeping one foot in the camp of what went before. You know, a lot of people trying to walk a neutral line without getting into trouble with the various factions. And uh, as he says to the father character, to Pa, he says, we can't all be playing the Lone Ranger. And mm -hmm. uh, Michael did a very nice job of trying to be uh, an even more of an everyman than even Pa was. Mm. Because the, the, the decision to black and white, was that something that you always... The decision to black and white, I just use it as a verb, but the, the, the decision to shoot it in black and white. No, I like that. I like that. That's 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 a new groovy kind of film criticism. I'm liking it. Or is it, maybe it's unique to your podcast work, but if so, I'm thrilled to be part of its inception. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if uh, you are, I, I said to Jamie Dorn, I said, I, it was always raining in Belfast when I grew up. What was it like for you? He said, the sun was always shining. What was it like for you, Chris? Was it rain or sunshine up your part of the, those woods? I, I remember a great deal of sunshine, strangely enough. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. For me, it was rain. It was monochrome. It was gray. It was shades of gray and black and white. And I loved it because it was very sort of uh, monumental. And uh, I really, I felt at home when I watched John Ford Westerns and I would see bits of Monument Valley and I'd see these massive vertical columns. For me, that really reminded me of cranes in the shipyard that dominated the skyline in Belfast. But black and white, for me, took me back to this sort of grit, to this authenticity, to pictures of my grandparents. And um, it was really a strong contrast that I felt in my life between that sort of forensic way of looking at people. Um, color did get, didn't get in the way. But when you went to the movies, as a small person, physically small person, you go into the center of Belfast and go to one of those big, big picture houses on Royal Avenue. That was a massive event. And the screen size and the screen sound were completely overwhelming and overpowering and transportive. I'd never seen places like them before, whether it was, you know, the made up worlds in, in uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or at one stage in the movie, uh, the sound of music was there. And, um, you know, that's a very expansive film. Robert Wise, who edited Citizen Kane, directed that movie. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a big it's a big widescreen thing. You'll be unsurprised to know that The Great Escape was in this film at one stage uh, as another sort of big <laughs> European landscape thing with a movie star at the center of it, Steve McQueen trying to get out of Germany on a bike racing over uh, or would be racing over barbed wire fences. Those massive widescreen color, technicolor experiences blew my mind or, or it amused me and perplexed me. I say a Beatles film like Yellow Submarine that I regard as one of the great pioneering trippy movies of our day. Yeah. Um, I think that I think that people must have been well stimulated when they were making that film because uh, <laughs> it it foxed me then, it foxes me now. Uh, yeah, I think I think it foxes a lot of people uh, that movie, but it, that movie is so colourful, and there are obviously there are splashes of colour throughout the film, and they're they're almost always, in fact, maybe always. You uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. They're linked to the arts, and they're linked to movies and obviously we see there's a there's a, a play that buddy goes to with the the late great john sessions uh in his last role and yeah. these are splashes of color was that something that you that you felt yourself as a kid growing up in this monochromatic world and you're beginning to develop this interest in acting and and the theater and arts and culture 
and everything just feels colourful. It was more about storytelling, but you're right that, yes, colour is all the art that meets the lives of these people is in colour. It's the stuff that, that has the, the brain fizzing. Um, for me, in going to the theatre, this, this real production of A Christmas Carol, 69 December, Joseph Tomalty, great uh, Irish actor, and George Malpass played Scrooge, a big, big regular character on Emmerdale uh, at that time. Um, they, um, they being in the room was a complete thrill. I couldn't understand. I mean, I could, I could have touched them. For me, that was, that was as, as magical in a different way. And, and somehow it made a curious kind of sense. But um, yeah, the, the, everything about, about sort of creativity w- w- thrilled me and also perplexed me because I had no idea how these things were put together, no concept. Always used to r- wander around at the back of the television and see if I could find the little people. And when I saw, I remember seeing a film at the, at the, uh, at the old Capitol Cinema up in the Antrim Road. I don't know if you know this film. It's Old Yeller. Uh, yeah. Y-E-W-L-E. About, so it's basically a Labrador dog heartbreak picture. Um, and it's an old Disney movie. And it has a whole mournful country song about Old Yeller. Oh, my God. That, that polacks me. The Marley and me of our day, <laughs> as it were. Uh, and uh, uh, for me, the, it just hit me that the power of – what you could do with a story. I saw it in life. My dad could tell a good yarn. Uh-huh. I could see in these improvised hoolies that everybody found a way to capture people's attention. But the stuff that excited me the most was on, a, was on some big proscenium, whether it was a theater or a film. And, and somehow that's where escape lay. And when the trouble started, that's where the escape route, escape route really pointed. And is that something, just, just going back to, you, to your, yourself, is that something that when you moved to England, that you very much continued rightfully off? Because I imagine England wasn't easy initially for you. It, it, it wasn't. And, you know, no one's asked me that before. And, and no, it didn't. No, that, that all stopped, actually. And what happened instead was we went inside and where I went was books. That's when I started reading. So first book was The Lone, Lone Pine Five, a sort of, uh, sort of um, slightly tougher, rougher, tougher, uh, sort of famous five thing written by a guy called Malcolm Savile. I bought it for five shillings at the Woolworths in Reading, brought it home to my father. He said, what did you do that for? I said, well, I wanted to read it. He said, we got libraries for that kind of thing. What, what's going to happen to it now? I said, I'll keep it. He said, but you've already read it. Well, I know, but, I, but I'd like to keep it because like, he couldn't, couldn't understand that. There had never been books in the house. Uh, but that's where I went for the next four or five years, I was a man of book till I was about 16. And then I hit that wave of 70s cinema, Dog Day Afternoon, The Conversation, all of those kinds of uh, movies sneaking into horror films like The Omen, Marathon Man, those kinds of um, mainstream movies of the time. But for about four or five years, uh, I stayed in my room and read basically. Wow. And what was your accent doing at that time, Ken? My accent was doing a merry dance, I suppose. I was trying, I, I, just like being in the bedroom reading books, I think at school I was just trying to keep my head down. You know, I did whatever you could to fit in. So uh, luckily I had uh, an average but useful capacity at sports. And so um, that, that was a passport to a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, allowance. Um, but um, it's essentially all the corners of it got rubbed off. And um, eventually, I, I think I became the most sort of the most neutral, most suburban, suburban kid you could possibly find. Almost as a defense mechanism. Yeah, you, you, yeah, like a disguise. It was like that was my cloak of invisibility. 
Yeah. And and accents are interesting in the movie. There's there's some incredible accents on display and not always from uh, not even just Belfast natives, but not even Northern Irish natives. So uh, yeah. were you particularly listening out? How, how, how keen was your ear when it came to uh, to accents in the film? Um, I think I was pretty uh, particular. I'm, I'm always keen about uh, consonants and consonants. I like the, I like whatever the accent. I like the sort of uh, the crispness around the pronunciation to be clear, so that people get a chance. If they're not used to the sounds, I, I'm certain that they'll pick those up eventually. But you just got to be clear and yet um, uh, authentic. So people like Kieran Hines, who grew up half a mile from where all of this went on knew it very well. Jamie Dornan from up the street there in, in uh, Hollywood County Down. Katrina Balf knew this world pretty well. She lived on the border in in Monaghan and um, was certainly aware of how volatile the situation was. And mm. Judy Dench had an uncle, and Uncle Peter used to visit her, who had a rhyme in his very, very strong Belfast accent that she used as her warm-up exercise uh, every day. And, um, and when she wasn't, you know, making Jude Hill her 10-year-old co-star, uh, you know, take her through the accent class before they started a scene. So uh, <laughs> it was, it was a, there was a lot of different kind of colors in, in the accents. And uh, yeah, I was always after clarity, but I also wanted it to be entirely where it was supposed to be from. Hence, casting people who had a very sort of clear sort of cultural understanding of the way people were, the, the very clear sort of delineations between the way men and women spoke, the sort of tones of voice and the kinds of humor and the and the, the sort of uh, joshing between them. You mentioned that incredible cast and this has been a very good year for and introducing credits in movies. Uh, you know, we saw Ra- Rachel Segler in Spielberg's West Side Story and now and introducing Jude Hill, uh, who is phenomenal in this movie. Uh, what were you looking for and did you think you'd find it? Well, we knew that the film really couldn't be made if we didn't feel someone upon whom we could hang the picture. It's a big ask for uh, you know somebody who was going to be playing nine. We, we got a veteran of 10 years of age and, uh, and, and he, <laughs> he, he stepped into the breach. We were looking for somebody who could listen and be present. Somebody who's listening wasn't about getting ready to say the next thing that you remembered you wanted to say, but who um, uh, was really right there in the moment because at least half of the performance was going to be the reaction on his face, the way the story unfolded. One of the things we did was not rehearse much with Jude, if at all. We would always try and capture every reaction to every scene for the very first time. And usually what you're seeing in that movie is his first take in that first scene. And he was very sharply on it. He was well prepared. Um, and he had that interesting combination for a young person of being well prepared. We, we encouraged him to be that way. And he noticed that others were as well, uh, but prepared in order to be as spontaneous as you can when you get there to be playful, because I let them know that we would encourage improvisation in particular places. And, and he had a great sort of ear for that. So it was his, it was his listening ability and his, uh, he has himself a genuine sense of humor. Uh, and a very strong personality. He's a Liverpool supporter. The character he plays is a Tottenham Hotspur supporter. And occasionally he had to mention the name of the team. And I promise you, he would not say it in rehearsal. He said, I'll do it. I'll do it when the camera is running, but I'm not going to say it now. I mean, he was quite, I mean, this was the one area on which I saw him go very boot faced and there was no, all, all sense of humor had gone. It was as if I was asking him to kill his firstborn by pretending that he liked Tottenham. 
That is so strange because there's no <laughs> natural rivalry between Liverpool and Spurs, I would say. Uh, but he, he, is a, he is a passionate Liverpool fan. So uh, a, a, any other team are, are, you know, lower life forms. And uh, <laughs> I think he regards Tottenham, a, a team that simply do not win anything ever, uh, as a particularly l- low form of life. Oh, well, this is the thing, Ken. You, 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 you don't choose your team. Your team chooses you. So, yeah. you know, you locked into Spurs a long time ago and that's, that's, that's the way it is. Exactly. And you'll see the, the man that locked me in, Danny Blanchflower, has his name yeah. uh, uh, in, in white paint on the end of our terrace. <laughs> precisely. Uh, precisely. And there's, a, there's another thing as well I wanted to talk about uh, in terms of the film, which is uh, Fan Morrison. Now, I'm a big Fan Morrison fan and clearly you are as well. And mm. was that something that, again, was in the scripting process or was that something that you found in the edit suite? This this use of about, was seven, I'd say, seven or eight, maybe, Van Morrison eight, tunes? Yeah. Yeah. Eight, yeah, including a new a new song, Down to Joy, which is the song that opens the film. Uh, it's hard not to think of Belfast music, which is rich and various, no question, always was, always will be, but without thinking of Van Morrison, who at the time the events of this film occurred had been two years in the charts with Astral Weeks, uh, an album that was was being um, celebrated around the world that included references to streets in Belfast and characters in Belfast. It was a he was a big cultural ambassador. Um, there were other 1960s tracks in the film to begin with, but in the end, uh, the, the the soul of Van Morrison's music and on approaching him, his his um, willingness to write a new song, but also to write this mood music, this incidental music, this solo saxophone and electric mm. piano, which sort of expresses a certain kind of tender melancholy in those streets. It gave it a coherence, the whole thing, and, a, and, a, and an integrated organic quality that felt uh, uh, entirely right um, for the story. He was, um, you know, I, led, I was led to believe he was, he was you know, a challenging a challenging collaborator. I didn't find this. Um, uh, he <laughs> spoke well about the script. It spoke to him. He has a complicated relationship to Ireland. Uh, many of us do. And mm-hmm. um, uh, and he, he 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 helped us remix some of the master recordings to for the for the movie mix. He gave us extra instrumentation orchestration when we asked for it. Um, and uh, and he was he was very sort of perceptive about a couple of cuts of the movie. So the entire sort of creative experience was a very uh, joyful one. He's somebody you didn't have to say much to. He just he just went off and did what it was you needed him to do. And I had this sense of a man born born to make music and work with music, uh, just uh, someone so predestined to, to be here to give that that uh, it was mm. it was a very it was a, it was a very fruitful collaboration in, in terms of choosing those songs it's interesting there's nothing from astral weeks uh, no, in the film no. uh, was that with, no, no, no. did you have a playlist uh, uh, well, yeah, we went through, I mean, a trillion songs were in there and, and many more than eventually made uh, the cut. But um, it just became, for instance, as a really not so well-known but beautiful song, Stranded, that plays as the bus heads to the airport. And that has that, the, you know, van saxophone on there, which is unmistakable. And um, uh, I, it was, it was, we started to have songs, you know, that more, more clearly related to the, the, the other sounds he was making in the movie, but in some cases they had sort of larger connections to a, a sort of different tapestry. For instance, his version of Carrick Fergus, which he sings as, as the father leaves uh, the kid at dawn to head back across the water, uh, is Van accompanied by the chieftains 
just mm. on the the late great Paddy Maloney there with uh, the, on the with the with the harp and with the with the bass and that was another piece where I suppose many of the most of the songs were were, were relatively um, stripped down Van with a couple of exceptions and that particularly is one where you know Van's Irishness and that that orchestra inner voice that he has um, is on display and where he makes a a common or garden to some people folk air he transforms it into a sort of five act tragedy yeah it's amazing and uh, I, I don't have a lot of time left but I, I wanted to ask about the writing process mm. and did this film pour out of you in a way were you able to plug back in to how people spoke back then uses of the the Belfast vernacular did that come mm-hmm. naturally I think it did. I think it did. It's, ne- it's never been gone. And it always it sort of secretly amuses me that, that people have me down, those who care about <laughs> having me down in any way, as a sort of uh, Oxbridge Shakespeare spouter. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. But, um, but uh, the, uh, for somebody who, you know, was brought up being perplexed by phrases like, uh, uh, I wasn't brought up the lock in a bubble. Or, um, you know, apples will grow again, should they grow on a gooseberry tree? Or just simply, you're up the left. Um, all of these, <laughs> I don't know where the left is, mum. Uh, but apparently I'm up it. I'm yeah. up it. Or, or as, uh, and this was an improvised piece from uh, Jude Hill. I just said, react to your father when he says this line. He's going to say to you, what, what's yours is mine, what's mine's me own. To which Jude replies, oh, my granny says that, what does that even mean? What does it mean? <laughs> And I found myself going back and thinking, well, I don't know what it means either, but I think it sounds nice. Precisely. There's there's lots of stuff. Uh, I think every town has their own little phrases. Every every yeah. family has their own little phrases. I remember sure. my mum saying to me once, I'll knock your melt in. <laughs> and I have no idea to this day. <laughs> I have no idea what a melt is. I don't know how you can knock it in, but there you go. So you can have that for free should there be a Belfast to down, down the line. That's the kind of remark as my mother would say, Chris, Chris, you have me up to Haydo. <laughs> I don't. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Ken, if we carry on much longer, this, this podcast may require subtitles. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I find my accent gets stronger when I'm around. When I'm back home, I'm going back home yeah, for a few days, sure. and it's going to get it's going to get pretty strong. Is that something? I, I, I don't know. You, you you do get back to Northern Ireland every now and I again. Do, I know. I, I I almost have always resisted that. When I went back for my first job, I went with a terrific actor, good Colm Convy, mm-hmm. for one of the first Billy plays that we did back there, and and uh, back in you know this is 1980. And uh, Colm had the same background as me. Came to England, spoke with an English accent. That as the plane arrived, he said. I'm Belfast now, and uh, and that was him off and running. And I've never been able to do that uh, trick myself. So I almost, I'm almost more English when I'm in Belfast, more English sounding. But uh, I enjoy, um, you know, I had a funny turn on on Ben Elton's uh, uh, sitcom um, uh, Upstart Crow Christmas special oh. a couple of years ago, and I I enjoyed being Colin and that, and. Uh, I, it's, I enjoy to hear the accent enormously, and it'd be nice to find. I'd love to do a great, a great part in the in the accent. Uh, maybe that'll happen at some point. Yeah, it's interesting that this was written and directed by Kenneth Branagh, but not starring Kenneth Branagh. So that was never on the on the cards. It was. It was. I was in it at one stage. At one stage, uh, an older version of Buddy, guess who played him, uh, came back to Belfast, 
And I'm afraid the performance and the actor were not acceptable to me. So uh, I've got to tell you, Chris, I cut him and I didn't even I didn't even have the courtesy to drop him a line and explain why. I just I just I just cut him out of the movie. Tough. Kent, you knocked his melt in. <laughs> Catch yourself on, etc., etc., etc. Pleasure as always talking to you. I could talk uh, for for many, many minutes more, but we have to wrap up. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. And there you go, Kenneth Branagh and me, two of the ones who left, as he says at the end of the film, talking about the wonderful Belfast. Uh, and in case you're wondering, I didn't get back to Northern Ireland. I had COVID just shortly after that. So thankfully, this was a Zoom interview and we spared Sir Ken the ignominy of contracting COVID from me. He would have knocked my melt in. Uh, also, if you don't know the other black and white Michael Maloney film I was referring to, uh, Watch in the Bleak Midwinter is another one of Branagh's best movies. It's a lovely, personal little trifle of a movie so check that out in the bleak midwinter anyway that is it for this interview special this belfast interview special with kenneth branagh will this movie finally see him win an oscar whether it's for writing or directing or for best picture time will tell but honestly i can't help but admitting to a little home country bias and hoping that he snags at least one Besides, the continued success of Belfast means that my spin-off idea based on my life growing up in Banbridge could be picked up at any moment. The current dramatic highlight of that movie is the time I got up to put a piece of paper in the bin in an economics class at school. I tripped, I fell backwards, I styled it out by doing a backwards roll and was then given detention by the teacher for perceived disrespect and horseplay. Hmm. Don't worry, folks. I'm over it now. It hasn't festered within me for decades. <sighs> anyway, this script won't write itself more as a pity, so I'm off to do that. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.